Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, Professor David Harris, about his new book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. Professor Harris studies the criminal justice system and police behavior, especially racial profiling. Today, though, we discuss the resistance to new scientific techniques by police and prosecutors. All right, so I'm here with David Harris today to discuss his book, Failed Evidence. And um, you set up the book with sort of a puzzle or a paradox. What What is this paradox? Well... I was uh, I've I've been involved as either a, uh, an actor in the criminal justice system, a defense attorney, a prosecutor, uh, and now as an academic for more than twenty years. And uh, there were some things I had noticed that uh, that really kept my attention over a long period of time. Uh, if you look at popular culture, if you look at newspaper headlines, you are likely to come away with the impression that science and law enforcement are partners mm-hmm. and that science now uh, is the big boost up for law enforcement and there's just no way the bad guys could escape. You see this on CSI, of course, and, and programs like that, but also newspaper headlines. DNA cracks 20-year-old cold case. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they can do that, what can't they do? Right. Uh, but the, the thing that, I, that caught my attention was that I knew that once you got beyond DNA... Uh, there was a lot of science that had been done, a lot of it by social scientists over the course of many years, sometimes decades. Uh, it was very good, solid, peer-reviewed, published, replicated science. Uh, and it was about more basic aspects of police investigation, like interviewing and interrogating witnesses, like eyewitness identification, mm-hmm. like very basic kinds of forensic work such as fingerprinting or bite mark analysis. And that science pointed out a lot of problems with these basic aspects of police methods. Uh, And uh, it it pointed out the problems at the same time it also supplied some real solutions. And yet, police departments, prosecutors' offices, uh, in most places in the United States, wanted nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. They rejected the science. They resisted it. At at the very least, they didn't have any interest in sort of recalibrating their basic practices to square up what people all up and down who'd studied what they do, what was really known and and not controversial. Mm -hmm. So there was this resistance to it. And I began to ask myself, why? What's at the heart of this resistance? I mean, they love the DNA revolution, the way that that can make uh, identification just on an almost a certainty. I mean, mm-hmm. the power of DNA has just been amazing, mm-hmm. and it's transformed law enforcement. At the same time, it's also exposed the weaknesses in some of these other okay. ways that police investigate things. We know now that as we look at the 300 DNA post-conviction exonerations, fully three-quarters of them feature a bad identification. Mm-hmm. Half of them feature faulty forensic science. Uh, more than a quarter feature a false confession or a false right. statement of guilt. Adds up to more than 100 because uh, some of them have two types of mistakes in it or more. Uh, and so you'd think there would be interest in getting it right. right. But in fact, with some exceptions, 
mostly there's resistance. So I asked myself, why? If we could understand what was at the base of that resistance, maybe we could break through it and we'd all get a better justice system. And I want to emphasize, I'm not, this isn't about attaining perfection. Right. There's no such thing as perfection in the justice system. Mm -hmm. It's a, a human creation. It's run by people. We're not perfect. But it's so clear that we're not doing everything we can with the brains God gave us. Right, right. And so you dig in a little deeper and you, you look specifically at um, police and prosecutors and you give really interesting uh, kind of cultural and organizational reasons for this. Why don't we start with police officers and how sort of the culture and identity of policing might cause this resistance? Sure. There, there are two main sets of barriers mm-hmm. uh, to this kind of change. Uh, one is a set of cognitive barriers, mm-hmm. and one is oriented to institutions and, uh, and political forces. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the cognitive barriers. And this, I think, really goes to either police or prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people who are listening to this will no doubt be familiar with the term cognitive dissonance. I mean, it's a, a concept that's very basic to psychology. It's mm-hmm. been around a long time. Some great things have been written about it. Um, and it's a very powerful force against change. Mm-hmm. And it really shows itself powerfully in the law enforcement area. Uh, we all know cognitive dissonance is the inability to have two opposite uh, cognitions in your mind. The human being has to resolve those. They actually create a physical tension. And so if I smoke two packs a day, uh, but yet I also know that, uh, you know, the Surgeon General 50 years ago said this is very unhealthy, causes lung cancer, emphysema, secondhand smoke is terrible for my, my family, uh, I'm in attention. That's a dissonance. And so I've got to figure out some way to rationalize it away. Right? So I say, okay, well, smoking actually keeps my weight down. Right. And that's a risk factor for all those diseases, so it all kind of washes mm-hmm. out. So. For law enforcement, and this is police or prosecutors, they are very much accustomed to thinking of themselves as the good guys, the people in the white hats. They stand up for the victims. They put the bad guys in jail. And that's true. That is what they do. Um, They are uh, about going there and doing the right thing every day uh, and, and attempting to get justice. And so that's a very strong set of, of, of cognitions right there. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, now, 20 years after DNA came on the scene, we know that sometimes even the best intentioned prosecutors and police officers, even doing things the way they've been trained to do them, doing them perfectly as, 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 as far as the way they've been taught, catastrophic mistakes happen. Right. Even to good police officers, and they get the wrong guy sometimes. And those are two things that are in great tension. So you get an attempt to rationalize the, uh, what we see as the results of the DNA revolution, to rationalize that away. Mm-hmm. 300 exonerations, well, over 20 years, that's hardly anything. That's a very small rate of error. Or 300 exonerations, well, see, they all got found. The system works. Oh, right. And so the cognitive dissonance is washed away. There is no appetite for saying, well, we have to change. Right? This keeps us from changing. Mm-hmm. Other interesting types of cognitive barriers, you have things like the status quo bias. Uh, people just want to select and stay with what they're doing now. You have loss aversion, things from so-called behavioral economics uh, were, were tremendously helpful in helping me understand this. Yet loss aversion is that the idea that, that uh, people are much more concerned about what they have now that they may lose in a change, as uh, they're more concerned about that than they are 
potentially excited right. by the potential gains. Uh, you have all kinds of forces like that really pushing against change. Uh, and that makes it very difficult to move uh, the needle here and to get police departments and the people who run them uh, to, to want to do things differently. Mm -hmm. Political and institutional barriers yeah. are the other main impediments to this. And again, it's police and prosecutors. And, and notice that with both of these areas, cognitive or political institutional, I'm not talking about anything that's peculiar to police or peculiar mm -hmm. to prosecutors. These are things that human beings do. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea is not police or prosecutors are bad or they're different. They're actually just human beings. But they have these incredible responsibilities. They have to get justice and get it right under a lot of pressure. So things can go wrong. So when we think of political and institutional barriers, number one for both police and prosecutors. Police, their goal is to close cases by arrest. It's how you get noticed in the department. It's how you get promoted. It's how you get raises. It's what make, gives you a reputation. Close case by arrest. Anything that looks like it might make that a little harder is going to be resisted. Mm -hmm. the, I, the identical metric uh, for prosecutors, uh, getting convictions and lots of prosecutors' offices that, that's tracked. These are both things for police and prosecutors that can be measured. Yeah. Uh, whether they're a good measurement or not mm -hmm. is, is a whole other question. But you try to push against something like that and you've got a real burden. You've got a real tough way to go. Mm -hmm. um, police especially, uh, the culture is a big factor yeah. within the police world. Uh, I've worked with police now for years. I've done police trainings at almost every level, leadership, rank and file. And it is not wrong to say that police have their own culture or subculture. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very difficult to penetrate. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's from the outside, an idea that comes from the outside, uh, an authority that comes from the outside, that carries a lot of suspicion with it. And you're not one of us. Right. You're one of them. And if you haven't, uh, you don't carry this responsibility, you don't wear the uniform, you don't wear the badge, uh, don't talk to us. Mm -hmm. You have no idea, the old saying goes. And that makes it hard to get within their circle and to show them uh, how things could be better and different. And they actually won't lose anything. Mm -hmm. There's also a role here institutionally that I think is played by the media. Right. The, the media in this country uh, is, uh, by and large, commercial. Mm -hmm. It is run um, by how many viewers or listeners you get, how many clicks you get. And the old saying that still holds true is, if it leads, it bleeds. i sorry, I got that wrong. If it bleeds, mm -hmm. it leads. Mm -hmm. And so despite the fact that crime has fallen for almost 20 continuous years in this country, you could go to any city in the country from New York to Omaha to Los Angeles, anywhere. You turn on the local news, which is where most people still get their news and information, the local TV news, and you would think there's a crime wave going on because the first, second, maybe third story is all about a shooting, a stabbing, some terrible thing happening, violence, and so forth. Uh, this isn't a true picture of criminal justice issues and violence in our country. Um, there are places where violence is uh, frighteningly common, but it is not a true overall picture, and yet people become frightened by it because yeah. they see it all the time. 
Um, you would almost think that in the months of May and November, there are giant crime waves in this country everywhere. Well, they're not, but that is, oh, that's the TV ratings months. <laughs> right. So those kind of, of mindsets that are set by the media, that becomes very difficult to push against. Yeah. Yeah. It really creates a culture of sort of fear and support yes. for punishment. Yes. And it makes it harder to change and it stifles ideas or leadership that might like to push against it and say, look, here are some alternatives. Right. And you make a great argument for that, that if change, if and how and when change should come in bringing kind of better scientific methods to to police work, it, um, it, it would be helpful if it came from the right. Yes, yes. So that's a very, it, it was a really interesting thing to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, if you follow the science, you'll have a very good idea of what kind of reforms should be made in eyewitness identification, you, you know, sequential lineups, blind lineups, in interrogating suspects, record the interrogations, yeah. uh, no lies about scientific testing. I mean, it, it isn't a mystery in forensics get rid of some of the worst junk science type stuff. What's harder is to figure out how you make all this happen given the resistance. And I came up with six uh, lessons as I went through this. And uh, they recurred over and over. And they, I think these are ideas that, can, uh, that could help move the discussion. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, one of those was the one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly important to have people from the political right as champions of your cause. And I saw this over and over. The natural allies for reform of criminal justice issues like this always come from the left. Um, and so those are going to be people you won't have any trouble recruiting to your cause, members of state legislatures, people like that. And the, the real action on these problems is going to be in the state legislatures. It is not going to be federal. Right. So you need people in the state government, and it's going to be easy to record, recruit people on the left. The problem with people on the left is they're afraid of being called soft on crime. They're afraid right. of that next election cycle when that ad comes out that says, you know, uh, Joe or Jane Smith stood up for murderers. Mm-hmm. I mean, who wants that? Mm-hmm. People on the right end of the spectrum who have often spent their careers uh, um, being tough on crime, whatever that means, uh, they don't have that same kind of fear. And when you get lined up with a person like that, uh, you can make real progress. And I saw that over and over and over in the work I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, those people stand up typically because they believe the integrity of the processes is mm-hmm. at stake, the integrity of the legal system, and that if it isn't fixed, uh, we will not have a working, trusted system. And I think they're right. right. And that's where we've seen real action in Ohio, in North Carolina, in New Jersey, some of these places where there's been some movement, it typically takes a person from the right. Even better, another one of the points that I, I kept seeing is if you, you need leadership not just from the right, but you need it from prosecutors and police officers right. themselves. Mm-hmm. Minnesota is a particularly interesting place, mm-hmm. as you probably know. Since 1994, police have been recording interrogations here. They've been required to. Right. And so when you study how things have gone up here, right. you see something immediately. Number one, the police like it. They love it. They love it's it. It's accountability for them now. It's accountability mm-hmm. f- for them. It protects them against bogus yeah. claims. I was talking to somebody this morning who does research on this up here, and he said, you know, there's almost no suppression motions on statements yeah. up here. Why? Well, because all the questions are answered. Yeah. It's right there. It's recorded. Right? 
And that has taken the worst abuses out of the system that used to happen behind closed doors. And guess what? The sky didn't fall. Mm -hmm. And when you have people who are in law enforcement talking to law enforcement, telling them, look, this is great and it's not going to hurt you and you should try it, that will allow us to make process, mm -hmm. make progress, excuse mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. You also had an interesting um, point that judges are sort of designated as the gatekeepers of junk science and they've done an exceptionally good job in civil cases, right? Yes. But, but why not in criminal cases? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'm pretty hard on police and prosecutors throughout the book because uh, they are the ones who gather the evidence mm -hmm. and the ones who use it in court. They have the the greatest opportunity to make change. Yeah. But I'm not willing to let judges off the hook, mm -hmm. or defense lawyers for that matter. Right. They all have responsibility, but judges particularly. Judges uh, are supposed to play the gatekeeper role for science coming into court. That's been very clear since the middle 1990s when the Supreme Court, handling the federal rules of evidence, sort of changed the outlook and said, judges, you've got to be the gatekeepers. Use those words. And what we find, if we, as we look at it, is in civil cases, Things like you know mass tort suits or uh, product liability suits like you know breast implants or whatever. Mm -hmm. The plaintiffs bring in uh, an epidemiologist, a scientist. The judges are very strict with that stuff, and they throw it out a fair number of times. Mm -hmm. They do not want any science in their courtrooms that can't be readily established as reliable, peer-reviewed, all that stuff. But you turn to the criminal side, and they're quite willing to allow almost any kind of so-called forensic work to come in without any database behind it, mm -hmm. without any real science. And this is even after the National Academy of Sciences has basically come out and said, you know, basic forensics, it's not really science. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. But judges are very unwilling to, to actually say, well, you know what, uh, you can't make the claim with these fingerprints that it's an exact match without specifying the probability. Right. Or you can't make the claim that the bite marks match when there's absolutely no data behind that. Mm -hmm. They're very reluctant to do that. They're reluctant to stand up. So they have a really important role that they've got to assume mm -hmm. to make these things happen. And defense lawyers have to be giving them their spine by just making those motions mm -hmm. over and over and over. And I don't care how many times you lose before it works you got to start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a large proportion of our podcast and website audience are sociologists, sociology students, um, social scientists in general. Is there a role for social sociologists in this in this issue where you know they could contribute to to improving the justice system in this way? Oh, I think so. I mean, when you look at the science that I'm talking about, uh, especially with eyewitness identification and with interrogation of suspects, what's amazing is how much of it has come from social science, mm -hmm. uh, especially psychology. Mm -hmm. um, so there's nothing that should hold any social scientist back from thinking about ways to test various propositions that are common in the justice system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having been a lawyer now for more than 25 years, practiced law, and now taught it for a good long time, uh, I've become uh, adept at hearing when judges or lawyers say something that's, very, that's quite customary to them but that actually has no proof behind it. Right. We're really good at that as a profession of saying, well, you know, we have the greatest system for X. 
can really? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it, where's your data? Mm -hmm. And that always meets a you know round of knowing glances and guffaws. Oh, we, we don't we don't need no stinking data. Yeah. You know we yeah. we uh, we know that's true. Everybody <laughs> knows that's true. Well, my 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 early scholarly teeth were cut on the issue of racial profiling, and I heard that over and over from police. We know this works. We know it catches bad guys. And then when I started to ask for the data, they said, we don't need any data. We, don't need any, we know it works. We've been doing it for years. Oh, we shouldn't have said that. But we, you know, we know it works. Mm -hmm. And it turned out when we finally got data collected on this and we got hold of it, uh, the emperor had no clothes. Mm -hmm. So social scientists in general and sociologists can be a great, great help in demystifying and debunking some of the things that are believed in the justice system, you know, sometimes by lawyers and judges and sometimes by police and prosecutors. Uh, creative ways to actually test this stuff I find tremendously helpful. One of the subjects I teach is evidence mm -hmm. uh, in the law school at University of Pittsburgh. And uh, I deliberately picked a textbook that is uh, full of excerpts from uh, empirical studies. Mm -hmm. So we say in court to the jury, jury, you, you heard the witness just say X, but I've ruled that that's, uh, that's inadmissible, so you must disregard it. And we've been doing this for hundreds of years. With the suspicion, I might add, that we're not really sure if it works. Well, now there's actual empirical testing, and I can tell you it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So maybe that ought to get us, lawyers, thinking about how to change the justice system. So I welcome that kind of work into the law, into police practices, because it can be a tremendous help. Mm -hmm. Well, those are all the questions I have. It was a really um, fascinating study because I, I really appreciated how you brought sort of the, the cultural and institutional and political uh, forces on this on, on this to light. So thank you very much. It's my great pleasure. And, uh, I enjoyed uh, talking to you. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, I assume you will post my uh, my yep. My yep, contact we'll, information we with will, it. Definitely. And I'd be delighted to hear from anybody. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. Pleasure.